0: Welcome to another uh, episode of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, we've got uh, Joe Whalen. And uh, Joe, uh, why don't you tell us a little about yourself?
1: Sure. So I'm a director of information technology for an electronics manufacturer in the DOD sector. Um, I've been in the industry for about 30 years now. Uh, I started out um, a long time ago doing... uh, computer work for Radio Shack, actually. I was, I was a computer specialist for Radio Shack. I know them. <laughs> yeah, I used to know them, and they're, they're really not around anymore. Uh, yeah. So I think I that moved... just
0: dated both of us. Sorry,
1: go ahead. <laughs> um, from there, I wound up moving into, I was invited to, to come to a, an ISP at the time, dial-up ISP, in the 90s, um, from a manager that I had actually worked for at Radio Shack. And that was really where, you know, I was a computer specialist at Radio Shack, but I mean, how special was that? Let's it's, be honest. Um, but my real IT career started working for the internet service provider doing dial up support. I was doing tech support for them, um, build out their web development group, build out their network engineering group. Um, came in literally at the bottom level, and about seven years later, I walked out of there as the operations manager, um, and things just sort of took off from there. moved into a, the software industry after that. I uh, was working for a, a wireless middleware company there, so I, I got to play in the wireless space for a while there, which was fun. Then I left there and was uh, invited to a... Um, a software company down in uh, Delaware, actually, uh, that was handling uh, rebates, which the irony of that is I'm the type of person that I never use rebates, and here I am working for a company that does rebate fulfillment. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of like the inside joke for the family for a while there. Um, and again, that was another one where it was the CEO of my former company had moved down to there and invited me to come down to work for him down there. Uh, and I was there. I came in as a consultant there for a while. Um, then they hired me on, and after my stint there, I wound up where I'm at now. Uh, came as a as a actually as a business analyst where I'm at now, and then I inherited everything to do with technology, and uh, built the IT department, built the development department there. I inherited uh, an IT staff and a company acquisition that we. Uh, we picked up a few years ago, so and it just sort of snowballs from there. And thirty years later, here I am, still playing in space.
0: So, how long have you been at the current one?
1: Uh, December will be nine years for me.
0: Nine years, and how big is the staff? If you don't, if uh, you don't we've mind, got,
1: <laughs> <laughs> we've we've got uh, a couple hundred people uh, divided between multiple sites.
0: Okay, 100 IT people or 100 people on multiple sites? Total employees?
1: Total employees. Okay. My IT staff is, is about uh, 12 right now.
0: Oh, 12. Um, how do you have them divided up? I mean, because oh, okay. like when I was working with my group and it was smaller like that, you know, it was like the guys that kept the blinky lights blinking and then the guys that put together the code and, and tried to make the magic happen.
1: Well, it's been difficult because when we acquired the other company, they were running their own systems down there, and it's been an 18-month, 24-month process of migrating all of their services up to uh, our data center uh, where we're at now, and... We just have a couple of IT folks on staff down there, basically for desktop support and, you know, maintenance stuff and, and stuff like that. The bulk of the staff is at my facility with my developers and my IT guys. Okay.
0: And then the, um, <clears throat> so let's let's jump back in time just a little bit. You know, you were talking about um, Radio Shack and, and uh, Computer Specialist. If I'm remembering right, that's back when, like, we were, buying the individual
1: components
0: and kind of really building it or were they were you selling a lot of the uh, like the TRS eighties? That's and,
1: uh, that's that's around the era that I came into computers was the, the TRS eighty era there. Um, so most of what we were working with there were those the, the Tandy one thousands and um, you know the the, the PC clones that, that, that Radio Shack was putting out at the time. Um, okay. and that's largely what I came in with. Uh, you know, first computer I had was a TRS-80 and, uh, that was, I don't know, I guess I was 16 at the time, maybe went out and, you know, worked my butt off with a paper out so I can go out and buy that computer because before it's, it's worthwhile stating full disclosure before I worked at Radio Shack, I was, a—I was one of the kids that used to go there and hang around and bang on the computers and play around with stuff, um, But not coming from a house, uh, a a family of means, um, we couldn't afford to buy a computer. So if I wanted to use a computer, I had to go use theirs until I I was able to earn the money myself, saving pennies here and there to go out and buy it myself. And that sort of started the addiction from there.
0: Oh, man, yeah. Wow. And then, then, so... um then came the ISP and you started off at the lowest rung there and then started helping them build and grow. And And you mentioned that you helped build up the different departments. So um, what were some of the, I can only imagine that you learned some lessons at that point that helped you build this stuff up or either that or, or, you know, the hard earned lessons of, of banging your head against the wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, you know, trying to teach users which is the power button for the monitor and which is the power button for the CPU.
1: <laughs> the, I, I think the biggest thing that I took away from that period was was really the value of of working smarter rather than harder. Because it was one of those things where you could throw bodies at a problem, but if you didn't have the know-how to do it, You weren't going to solve the problem. So a lot of what we wound up doing when I walked in there, our ticket system was literally a piece of paper that we would write stuff down on. And one of the first things that I did, because we were on a Unix system at the time, one of the first things that I did was I went and wrote a a a CRM basically in in Bash that we could do (laughs) customer name lookups and it would go out and use the finger tools and. We had uh, uh, utilities that, that connected to our total control machines that would go out there and pull dial-in information. So, it was, it was crude, but it was effective in a text interface, and it was worlds better than what we had. And everything dumped into a flat file that we eventually moved into a Windows-based web application later on. So, that <laughs> I wonder- was one of those things where we had to build the tools ourselves because they just didn't exist
0: right. and And I wonder how many of our listeners today even know what the finger <laughs> the, the finger command did um, or does? or is it even still available? Is it still around? Maybe it, you, in, in
1: you, Linux, but by I don't think it's installed by default. in Linux, you have to install there's a package you install that you get, you know finger and Usenet, all the all the basic ones.
0: Wow, dang. <laughs> that's taking me back to those days of of chat rooms and bulletin boards.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's that's funny. That's Just funny. before uh, we went on the air here, I uh, I was looking at a message that one of my vendors had sent me. <clears throat> excuse me, that was a uh, massive BBS list, and he showed me. You know, he because we were chatting last time he was in the office. And I went in and looked it up, and my BBS is listed on there from you know the early '90s. So I'm kind of nostalgic about that. <laughs>
0: Dang. <clears throat> okay. So and, and I kind of just jumped over the fun of of taking the phone calls from ISP users, people calling for support, um, you know, that probably couldn't get online, or once they were online, they couldn't find stuff. The the amount of resources and the things that were online at that time
1: was minimal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was at a point when we started out, you didn't have DNS. You had a a list of IP addresses that you slipped into the disk that you sent out to your customers. And you go to these and this is what they are. And, you know, this is how you get the things out there. It was really before you had any kind of search engine technology at all.
0: Yeah, I I remember um, what was it Netscape or what one of the other ones where you could do the like wheel of fortune almost. You just hit a button and it would randomly pick up some web page and just bring it to you. And you were just yeah. that was that was how we used to surf the internet.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you could do it back then because there you know you could count the number of websites you know and on your hand almost. Uh, yeah. And then they they exploded like you know ninety four ninety five it all exploded.
0: Yeah, see, I think that's the time that I really started getting online was a little closer towards ninety four, ninety five. 95. I was going back to school and working on my, my bachelor's. Um, so you also mentioned that then you started helping them build up the teams and things like that. So talk about that experience a little bit, going from doing, answering the phone and, and creating the CRM. So they must have seen something in the fact that you started to build a system for them, made them more efficient. And then
1: it was one of those things where uh, there was a need to do things. And I was always the type of person that I didn't ask permission, right? If there was something that needed (laughs) to get done, you do it, you figure out how to do it. And as I started doing these things, people started noticing. And at one point in time, they came to me and said, look, you know, we need to hire more uh, staff here to answer the phones and to, to help out. Could you interview Beagle? And I wasn't even a supervisor at that time. They literally just wanted me to talk to people because I knew the work, I knew the job, I knew the company. So I literally just started out interviewing. And that was interviewing everybody. It wasn't just technical. The sales guy had me interviewing his people because the people that I hired, the retention rate that I had on the people that I hired was something like 95%. You know, I think I out of out of maybe thirty people that I interviewed and said to hire, I think I lost one person, maybe if that. So, the salesperson, sales manager, came to me and had me interview his candidates too. He just gave me his list of of what his requirements were, and I was able to weed through the candidates there. And that they they kind of, I fell into that leadership position. Uh, it was never something that I. I looked for or sought out. It was just it was thrust upon me because of my, I don't know my my force of personality. I guess you could say. And and from there it just sort of went on that you know I was the guy that when you needed something done, you went to to Joe to get it done, and and that was just sort of the reputation. In fact, when I was working at the, at the software place, uh, the first software place I was at, they used to call me Gandalf. Because I was the guy. It didn't matter what you go to Joe and Joe will fix it for you. And I think yeah. that's 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 kind of one of those uh, you know victim of my own successes type things where I'm still in that position now where you know it could be anything you know the door's jammed oh call Joe he knows how to fix it and let's say like, it's like you're almost stumbling over yourself with all the requests that are coming in.
0: Yeah, I've I've run into that same kind of thing, and man, there's days where it's not fun. Hey, you can fix this, right? Or or I need something that does that.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: <clears throat> and so, quick question on on one of the other things that you said. You know, you didn't ask for permission to do stuff. You would just do it, fix it. So you'd see a need. And you just make a solution for it, and then you also had lots of times where all of these different people are coming to you for solutions. How often was it the boss coming to you for the solution versus the um, the coworkers? Or <laughs> I, I, I'm trying, I'm coming up with all kinds of adjectives, and none of them are kind, so I'm not saying them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. At the ISP, the boss never really came to me for answers. He always did an end around. Uh, and it was largely because he and I didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. At um, the software company, I did the same exact thing. You know, I came in as a tech, uh, there was a level, I was a level three tech support guy at the time and it was mobile middleware and it was a completely new animal to me, but I was doing it from a system administrative standpoint, handling the server side of things. And there was a need, there was a need for an intranet site because we had information everywhere and none of the documents were managed. So I spent one weekend, I worked through the weekend at the place, I built out this entire website for the company not even for the company, it was for the department, but it, it handled all the stuff for the company. And the CEO comes down Tuesday after I put that online and congratulates me personally, comes down, shakes my hand, congratulates me. And I'm like some kind of celebrity now because I'm on a first-name basis with the CEO of the company. <laughs> nice. So, talk. it Again, it, it's a mix. It's a mix of depending on personalities and and which company I was at. Some some were much more hands on than others. Um, others, um, when I was working just in IT, IT is, you know, that necessary evil because we don't generate we don't generate income. So we're always a loss leader for everybody. So a lot of times, they don't want to talk to us unless something's broken. Um, right. the the real visionary ones understand and appreciate what you do for the company, even though there's not a dollar value associated with what you bring in um, if you can get to a place like that that's where I'm at now, that's really what what the situation is, is they have a a deep seat of appreciation for what technology does for the company um so it's a lot easier to have those conversations
0: yeah see i'm I'm at that that kind of a place currently within my career also but we're also starting to flip the tables on that a little bit more and we're starting to show that that we're not the loss leader that everybody thinks because they they look at us and they think okay expense 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 but then when we help them instantiate software or create an intranet site like you just did there's a huge productivity gain absolutely and if you can document that stuff and you can legitimize the productivity that comes from it then then you are a profit center not just a loss leader and it's that's like one of the biggest struggles i think we as um the industry um, especially as the support or the internal it for any given organization it's one of the biggest fights we all have is trying to prove to people that the financial value because there's a lot of people who see the other value otherwise we wouldn't have all the requests that we have you know exactly yeah it, you you mentioned it earlier too you know if you're a victim of your own success because you've helped people and so now they keep coming back to you and they keep coming back to you for more help and to make them better at what they're trying to accomplish
1: yeah, I mean at the end of the day we're solutions providers, you know, and sometimes most of the time that solution that I I provide you is a technological one, but there's much more value. You know, I'm I'm dealing with one of our internal organizations now where uh, they need to acquire a server for uh, a hosting environment that they're working in and they're they happen to be going through an MSP to make that acquisition. And the MSP is really just trying to give them a canned solution that doesn't – it might solve their problems, but it's not really what they need. And it's much more expensive. So, I've been taking a lot of time to walk the decision makers through what the technology is, what the costs are, what your options are. You know, their number one concern is reliability. And the MSP is selling reliability in, I don't know, a RAID 10, for instance. And and the argument that we're having is, okay, well, that's great, but then we don't have the capacity that we need. And they're telling me, well, you need to go this route because performance, you need the performance on the drives. Okay, well, I've got 16 people working in this environment. You're moving me from 10,000 RPM drives to SSDs. RAID 10 is not going to give me a, a significant improvement in, in, in performance over that. So, I can throw that out the window and start looking for other options. Like, they didn't even explore with them the ability to spin virtual machines up in the cloud if there's an outage or anything. It's like their number one priority is reliability. And you can get to that, and it's a multifaceted approach. And so many people get to get it. Yeah. The MSP is only looking at it from one particular perspective because they assume that the end users don't understand the technology. And and that's really a failure on the MSP's part, not to educate your customer at that point. Because an educated customer is a customer who's going to be a better customer in the long run. Right,
0: yeah, and and when you educate them, then they're gonna become more loyal, they're gonna ask you more, they're gonna look for you more, and they're gonna lean on you more because they, they recognize that you're gonna bring more value to them than just, um,
1: this is the hardware you want. Right. And and I'll admit, I'm I'm very guilty, and my daughter will attest to this, of over-explaining things. When you come to me and you ask me a question, I don't like to just give you the answer. I like to make sure you understand the answer. And sometimes that requires overexplaining. My you know, my one boss at, at the office now, he's you know, he's he's fond of the phase of this phrase of explaining it to me like I'm an eight-year-old. And and I can't because an eight year old can't understand these things. So I have to give you that background to really make you understand it. Um, but yeah, a lot of times, IT isn't just about working with technology, IT is working with people. A lot of times, I'm a hostage negotiator almost. You know, I got to talk people down off the ledge, I got to convince people that this is really what your problem is, or this is really what you're looking for. A lot of times people come to us and they tell us what they want and they tell us how to do it. And I have to tell my guys all the time, we're the guys that provide the solutions. The customer needs to come to us with what their requirements are and then we'll figure out the best way to do it. Because a lot of times people want something, especially from the software standpoint oh, can I have this feature added? Well, okay, we can add that feature and it'll do what you want, but it's going to break five other things for another department. And the users don't think like that. So we'll yeah, be able to like, I don't care, just do it right. for me. <laughs> right. So our job is to provide a holistic solution for everything because we're solution providers. Yes, I could, I could hang that picture with a sledgehammer. Chances are I'll probably go through the wall with it. Maybe we should use something different than the sledgehammer you want me to use. Yeah. So a lot of it's sorting out what tools to use.
0: Yeah, that's one of the ones that I always tried to teach everybody, too, was, you know, so many of the users come to us and say, hey, I want this, and I want it this way. You know, make the Excel spreadsheet do this. And, and, you know, I learned early on to ask, well, why? What's the goal? What are we trying to get done here? Because there's a lot of times where I'm like, oh, you need the Excel spreadsheet to do this, but guess what? The system already has a report that gives you exactly what you're looking for. And all
1: you got to do is push this button. And they're right. like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, you know, our job is to solve problems, not to treat symptoms. So don't yeah. tell me part of the problem. Tell me what you're looking to do. And then together, and I'm not trying to exclude the end user, together we can, we can figure it out and give you the best answer that, that'll solve your problem.
0: Yeah, no, it's actually, it's one of the most important things is to make sure that that end consumer or that end user is involved in it. Because otherwise, there's been so many times that we've created stuff, brought it to them, you know, like we disappeared into the back room for a while. We come out going, here you go, just what you asked for. Yeah. Oh, thanks, great. And then they just reach over, set it down and go back to whatever solution they found or figured out while we were off in the back room.
1: And that's what I try to avoid, the, what we like to call the, the black box technology. You know, I don't want to give you a black box that does something magical. I want you to understand what you're asking for, and I want you to understand what the technical limitations are and what the impact is. Because every time you ask me to do something, I have to do an impact analysis to make sure it's not going to break something else. So the next time you come to me and you decide that you want pink polka dots on the screen, understand that that's going to cause other impacts elsewhere. And it might influence what you ask for at that point. Yeah, what about those colorblind people? <laughs> <laughs> and so really, the, the biggest issue is with development most of the time, because once people see what your developers are capable of doing, then it's, it's you know, the world is your oyster at that point, and they start asking for every crazy thing under the sun. Oh, yeah. And it's like, okay, we've got a, a development timeline that we work with. We've got a roadmap that we have to fit this stuff into. If you really want this and you really need it, it's going to take you six weeks to get it. And when you say that, then they start backing off. Well, I don't really need it that bad. and you know, Then they start to prioritize how important it is.
0: Oh, see, I usually get, okay, we want that. And then about <laughs> two weeks in, they get, they see a new shiny bobble and then <laughs> right. they want that. And they can't understand why the, why if we work on the second shiny bauble, um, the first one's going to take longer.
1: Right, right. <laughs> well, or that, or the shiny bauble you sold them in the first place has four or five different requirements changes by the time it actually comes out. And it's not shiny, nor is it a bauble anymore. <laughs> <Okay>. Amen.
0: <laughs> so tell me a little more about the, um, the rebate job and, and the irony of, of, Working at a rebate center, but not taking rebates. Did you learn any tricks? Did you learn anything? Do you take rebates today?
1: Uh, I I still don't do rebates. And working for a rebate processor (laughs) told me exactly why, because it was largely a scam. Um, And and I can say that now because the company's out of business. So, (laughs) but. I walked in and they were doing, they had just acquired a contract for a major retailer who's also out of business now. And they were given 90 days to build a solution where they were taking uh, receipt information. And their magic secret sauce was instead of filling out all these annoying forms and mailing in those cards and all that stuff, you come to our website you punch in these three pieces of information, and then we'll compare that to all the receipt data that we're getting from the retailer, and we'll qualify you. And on paper, it worked great. And 90 days into it, they put up a website, they collected all of that customer data, and people started hitting the site and, and filling all that data in. And they didn't have to re- uh, redeem any of the rebates for another 90 days. Well, when it launched, there was literally nothing in the background for it. There was no engine for it. There was no qualification engine for it. There was nothing to process it. They spent the first 90 days just building this facade that you could put the data in. And they were collecting all the data, and nobody was getting any updates that, that you're qualified, you're not qualified. It was, it was a disaster. And the company had actually contracted out with a third party development house for it. And they gave them one local developer who came in, did the first part, building the facade, took a vacation, and like had a nervous breakdown or something when he was on <laughs> vacation. <laughs> he came come back. back Three weeks later, he comes back, he dyed his hair, divorced his wife, and like completely different personality, spent three months writing the engine itself, and then just disappeared from the project and was never heard from again. It was the most obscure thing that I had ever experienced in in technology when that happened. Then they wound up offshoring everything to uh, a company (laughs) in India, and we wound up getting a team of people that we were working with, and it's difficult trying to do stuff like that with the time difference.
0: Yeah, that time difference is, I, well, I notice a time difference in two hours, you know, working with people out on the East Coast. I'm out yeah. in mountain time, and it's amazing how much of a difference two hours makes, let alone the three that we get from Pacific to East Coast.
1: Yeah, well, we were dealing with, sometimes it was a 12-hour difference, sometimes it was a 13-hour difference. And trying to schedule, because they wanted to have daily calls with these guys. Well, it's like midnight, you know, where they're at. They got to stay at the office late whenever they wanted to have these calls. And it was, eventually, they wound up flying a team of three of them in, uh, to the office in Delaware. And they put them up for three months in Delaware. So, these guys literally had to live in the States for three months to do this job. Which they weren't very happy about, but... and. Then they,
0: they also had to um, fit both time schedules again because they, yep. they would work with you guys during the day, and then they'd have to stay up to communicate with the other team on the other side of the planet. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. So how long was that one? That one it sounds like it didn't last very long.
1: <laughs> that Well, that project itself lasted a, about a year. I was, I was working as a consultant for them at that time, and then they when that kind of went away, they they moved on to a few other projects and they weren't nearly as ambitious because they had already had a qualification engine that they were using um, for uh, CompUSA, as a matter of fact. (laughs) And they had built one for CompUSA's rebate system. And it worked. It wasn't anything fancy. It didn't do anything automatic or anything, but it did the job. And they kind of abandoned this one for the new retailer and went back to that one and, and they started servicing customers on that. And it, it worked out, they were able to keep a trickle of customers going through there for a while.
0: Okay.
1: <clears throat> so the the current
0: place that you're working on electronics for, how many mergers have you been through? Just the one
1: or? Uh, they've done a couple of acquisitions. Or acquisitions. Uh, okay. Since M&A. I've been there, yeah. Okay and yeah. any any
0: lessons learned from that because that's that seems to be something that, that um I've seen a little more of that happening lately and maybe it's just my awareness of it or you know there's just more consolidation happening um, at this time in our history
1: and it is and it's happening across every industry out there and i think probably the biggest takeaway is to don't go into those things with any preconceived notions. <laughs> um, because it's it's going to be, like, for instance, they they do the same type of work that the parent company does, but they do it very differently. They have a very different style of manufacturing that they do. And a lot of the things that, you know, we basically tried to squeeze a square peg into a round hole and found out that the corners of that peg got trimmed off and somebody's missing those corners now. So there was a lot of going back and cleaning things up. Uh, There's been a huge load on the developer staff because we develop an in-house system that goes along with the -the off-the-shelf system that we use. So there's a lot of customizations that are going in to handle, accommodate all the different needs that we have there. And, and, And really, it was just a matter of we thought we just, bring them in, pick them up, drop them in our system, and it would just work. And they, they, I mean, when is that ever realistic? Yeah, that's why I'm (laughs) laughing, man. That's
0: why I'm laughing. Uh, And we've had to go through a couple of those where we just took over a business or took over like four stores and going out there and spending a weekend so that they're Friday night, they close business as one company. Monday morning, they start up business as another company. And getting the networking going, the PCs going, making sure the accounts are there, that you didn't lose documents, that all of the in-flight transactions are still available, its it can be a challenge. And, and it makes for a long weekend.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were – I was very blessed because I had a very competent team of guys down there who were intimately familiar with the systems uh, and very uh, – experienced dealing with these types of things. So they they certainly helped to make that transition better. Um, and the, the we had a lot of backing from management on it too. They, they understood how important this was. Um, and I didn't have any pushback on, on funding for any of the equipment that we needed. Uh, we went down there in the first six months and, and ripped out all the uh, layer two switches that they had, replaced their entire network down there because they knew that they needed it um it it was it was it was heartening to me to have that level of trust placed in me to go down there and and do what i thought was right and then to sit back and see the successes that came out of it afterwards um and i give i give our management team total props for having that level of confidence in me
0: yeah well and and you know you built that confidence too you, you provided that and gave them the experience with you succeeding at what you did so that they built that trust because trust sure. is earned. You know, Absolutely. It, it takes a long time for us to earn that trust and only moments to break it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I tell my daughter uh, that trust is like currency. It's hard earned, but it's easily wasted. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, and she understands it when you say it like that. Yeah. Well, um so, Somebody
0: mentioned something else. Um, I believe you do a podcast.
1: I so, yes,
0: I do. So tell us a little about that, and and then we'll expand on it a little too. Because <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I started doing a podcast for my daughter uh, when she was about twelve. Um, she was having some some issues adjusting to to middle school and and going through, you know, the the various changes that that teens and preteens go through. And it was more a therapy session that we did for her. We would sit down, we would do a podcast, you know, 45 minutes or so. We'd pick different topics and explore them. You know, we talked about everything from braces, because she was getting braces at the time, to anxiety, to depression, to um, we did a two-part uh, episode on uh, her getting uh going through puberty and it was it's it was conversations that i think a lot of a lot of parents want to have with their kids but they don't know how to approach them all the time and after about i don't know 20 or 30 episodes we started getting some feedback and i was getting feedback not only from from kids but from parents and i had one woman we had done a a uh, episode on depression. So what we do in the format that we do is we'll go out, we'll do research on a topic, we'll do read-throughs of a script on a topic, and then we'll banter back and forth and discuss it and go into the, in the detail. So the research that we did on the depression, I had a woman reach out to me afterwards and, and thank me because she, she, she had this stigma about depression where she didn't feel comfortable talking about it. You know, she was brought up in a house where it was just, you know, get over it, stop being so mopey, and so forth. And listening to me and my daughter talk about it, it it made her realize that it's okay to talk about stuff like that. And I explained it to my daughter, and she really understood at that point in time that the podcast didn't just help her, it's actually helping other people. And that totally reinvigorated her approach to how she did the podcast. Um, so we were very fortunate in how many people we've been able to reach with that. And we do, you know, I do a podcast with my, my wife, we do an entertainment one and that's more for fun. Um, and then I do kind of a current events one with my son. Uh, Cause it's sort of the stuff that you want to, you want to have those conversations. in. you know, we talked about everything from SETI to uh, the election to, you know, women's rights, all kinds of stuff that we talk about, but it's stuff that I wouldn't normally have that opportunity to talk about if I didn't put it into a podcast format. You know, it never comes up at the dinner table,
0: right? Well, I, I mean, it, it's stuff that could, or at least on Leave It to Beaver, and supposedly it <laughs> did. You know, but but I, I, the brilliance of how you handled that with your daughter. Um, you know, you started talking about it because, in all honesty, I heard about it, so I went and hit your website and I saw the different topics, and then I saw who the co-hosts were, and I just kind of assumed that it was going to be individuals like like you did your topics, and your daughter did her topics, and your wife did her topics, not the back and forth. And, and what a way to broach some of these conversations with your daughter in a way that um, it, you set it up for a, a different type of conversation. It's not dad talking to daughter, it's, it's two people talking about that topic who happen to
1: be a dad and a daughter. Right, right. Yeah, she comes in as a subject matter expert on a lot of these things, and it's a confidence builder for her.
0: Yeah. So how long, is, how long have you guys been doing it?
1: Uh, February, January, February will be our end of our third season doing it.
0: Right so
1: We've been doing it for three years now. Cool. And so,
0: you know, I I just once I realized that it was a family affair, I thought that that was really cool. And and I just was amazed that you guys are doing that. And now to find out that it's really more of a family affair than even what I was thinking, because, like I said, I was just envisioning each of you having your own guests and doing things with like, you know, you're out there talking or being a geek or a nerd and and. You know, the, the daughter's t- aiming at, at, like, my daughter's, you know, they want to do the makeup tips and things like that. Yeah. And um, so, it, but obviously, you know, your daughter's not doing those kinds of topics. She's talking about deeper topics that are that,
1: um, near and dear to what she's experiencing. And, so. and she's come out of a lot of, like, she'll, she'll go into some of these, like, when we're doing the anxiety and the depression. Uh, she would go into them thinking she was depressed, and then after we did the research and we did the podcast, she would come out of that and say, "Yeah, I'm not really depressed. I think it's just anxiety. It's it's this causing anxiety in school and band and this and that," and and she would walk away thinking, "Okay, I'm not depressed now. It's anxiety, and we can deal with that," and then we deal with it. Um, right. So it it makes her realize that she's just like other kids, and and it's not the world against her and it's just, we try to keep it as uplifting as possible. All right. So three seasons of doing this, dealing with
0: family members, talking about multiple types of topics. Um, one, tell everybody where to go to, to listen to any of these.
1: Oh, you, yeah, you can get audio and video versions of all of our podcasts at dot com.
0: Okay. So, um... The things that you've done with that, what what lessons and, and did you learn anything from doing this or did you gain any experiences from doing this that you brought back to your professional life?
1: Uh, I've learned a tremendous amount about the technology needed to do it. I've learned sound engineering. I've learned video production. Uh, I've learned how to sound condition a room. And all that stuff actually has, has wound up translating into uh, doing a similar thing. I wound up inspiring my company to actually start their own podcast, which they recently started recording. Uh, and I guess I'm a technical consultant for them on that to keep coming to me for, for questions. Um, but it, what it really is, it, it's a, a big time management learning lesson. You know, you have a set amount of time. You have a set amount of topics you want to talk about. And you need to do it in a, in a timely manner. And, you know, w- when I was working for the ISP, they used to have a, a show, a short-lived show on public television, and I had to write the scripts for it. So I, I got a little bit of understanding of how to write a script and and how to write segments and and stuff like that. And that helped me here. And, and in what I'm doing it here from a podcast standpoint, you know, you, you have to write the show in such a way that, you don't have dead air, obviously, and you're going to ask a question. You kind of know, need to know what kind of answer you're going to get when you ask a question because you can't ask a question and get a one-word answer and then just sit there, you know, trying to come up with another question, right? Oh, there's, there's, yeah. a, there's an art to interviewing people, I think, that, that was something that I definitely learned. Um, And it helps me every day having conversations with people and knowing how to react to them. You know, you ask someone a question. This is largely why I do video, too. I didn't want to just do audio. But you ask somebody a question because we occasionally will have uh, guests online, uh, subject matter experts. And the answer isn't always just what they say. It's how they say it. <laughs> it's facial expressions. It's 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 the micro ticks that people have. And you pick up on that type of thing, which is why video conferencing became so popular during COVID. You know, you could have the same conversation on the phone call, but you're not going to get the same value out of it. Right. so a lot of a lot of it is you know learning how to read people and understand conversations. and And I don't want to say control the conversation, but guide that conversation,
0: yeah, well, and and so, You know, in all honesty, I'm coming at at these um, interviews and a lot of things that I'm doing where I'm just, I'm completely winging it. I come in and and I just want to have this conversation with you. And and I I feel that I'm good enough and understand most of the technology that it's easy enough for us to have a conversation about that. Then we get off into unknown territory and, yeah, I could easily see where it could just suddenly be some dead air or something like that
1: yeah, and it's funny. My son just graduated from college uh, and he majored in broadcast journalism. So I've learned a tremendous amount from him and the experience that he received during his courses on you know introductions and and how to, you know, handle the intonations when you're when you're answering. And it's it was, you know, I've learned a tremendous amount from him during this whole thing. and 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 it's great. Um, even, even you know, situations my wife laughs at me, but I'll go back and listen to our shows. And she's like, Why do you listen to your own show? You sat through the whole thing. I said, Because when you listen <laughs> to your whole show, you hear things. You hear those ums and the ahs and the the fillers that you put in that you subconsciously don't realize you're putting in. And when you go back and listen to it, oh, that's what happened there. Okay, so I'm coaching myself at this point to get better. We went back and listened to the first couple of podcasts with my daughter and they're almost, you can't listen to them because we were so inexperienced at the time and didn't know what we were doing. And you listen to what we do now and, you know, it, it almost sounds professional at this point in time. Well, that's cool.
0: I mean, I, I here I go stuttering because now I'm highly conscious of it. (laughs) Oh, and and then headed right into the dead air as I try to think of the next question. Oh man.
1: Well, our joke is always, I don't worry about it because my daughter and I always joke around. We, we, we do our shows live and uh, we record them. And what goes on live is what goes out for the production on Mondays. I don't, Really cut anything out. We'll just do some sound editing and clean up the sound so we don't have background noise and stuff like that. But you're human, you're gonna make mistakes. And we don't try to hide the mistakes, we celebrate those mistakes. We try to get them all in the beginning of the show if we can, so that the rest of the show goes nice and smoothly. Um, but it's it's one of those things where, you know, the joke is we'll fix it in post. Don't worry. And my daughter's <laughs> like, No, you won't. You'll never do it, you never fix it in post.
0: <laughs> yeah, Dad, you just hit the publish button. I I watched. I've listened. <laughs> so uh, actually, the thing I was trying to think of was, you guys started in twenty nineteen or twenty twenty.
1: Twenty nineteen. It was it was before the, the pandemic. Okay. okay. All right. So we, we haven't I, had anybody in studio as a guest since COVID hit, though. Oh. So all of our in studio guests were were before that. So we've had to do everything remote since then. Okay. Um, which reminds me of
0: something else You mentioned on the ISB and and working with the public TV.
1: Do you ever watch Tech TV? Oh, loved day? it. Yeah, I still I still watch uh, Leo's podcast now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorites was always Leo and Steve, Steve mm-hmm. Gibson.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, well, they, they still do their security now podcast, and yeah. you know if you can sit through the two and a half hours of deep <laughs> in the weed stuff, there's a lot to take out of it. That's for sure. Oh man, for sure. In fact, I, they friend. were they were in Jersey. Oh god, I want to say in '97, '98 they were doing a a, a a lecture tour here, and I went to go see him at one of the local uh, hotels. And it was uh, right at the start of .NET because he, when he went through question and answers, he, I had asked about that. And nobody else had asked about the impact the.NET .NET was going to have. And he was doing the tour with Patrick Norton at the time. And they were phenomenal, you know, in person doing the show. They were very gracious, signing autographs, everything. Uh, and then when I started working for the company I'm at now, one of the owners of the company is based in California, and he's a fan of the show. In fact, he still says one of, the, one of the reasons I got the job was because he asked me if I knew who Leo Laporte was, and I went off on him with that story. And he actually, I flew out to California. We went up to uh, San Francisco, and we did a day in San Francisco and actually went to watch one of the live po- uh, broadcasts of, uh, of his uh, This Week in Technology, which was really cool.
0: That would've been awesome. That, that must have been a fun experience to do that. What what lessons do you got for tomorrow or for the kids that are following us who are who were listening to this, trying to figure out how how do I go from being help desk or answering the phone to help somebody with their their DSL or their cable modem today? How do I get from there to being a director of IT or a CIO?
1: Well, the first thing is you have to be passionate. You know, the, the one advantage I have is I love what I do. I've loved it everywhere that I've done it. And if you love the work you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That's the first thing. You got to love it. Got to have a passion for it. The other thing is don't be afraid to learn. I, I am the type of person that I consume knowledge everywhere I can get it. Um, Whether it's podcasts, TV shows, books, magazines, blogs, articles, doesn't matter. If there's something that I can get out of it, I will sit there and consume that, even though I may never need it. The fact that you're making your brain do these things. And I I explained to my daughter the one day, actually Neil deGrasse Tyson had had said it, that kids are like, why do I need to learn calculus? I'm never going to use calculus. Calculus. And and Neil deGrasse Tyson said, well, it's not about learning how to do, it's not about learning calculus. It's about training your brain how to learn to do calculus. It flips switches in your brains and allows your brain to learn differently and learn more things. So the more things that I can learn, the better I can train my brain to learn the things that I need. So never stop learning. Whether it's industry-specific or, or you know, something that interests you, even though you may be learning something that's not specific to IT, you're training your brain how to work differently and how to think differently. Um, my very early start before I got into the technology, I was an emergency management coordinator for my town, and I was saddled with having to write the emergency procedures that were FEMA compliant. I had to work with FEMA and go through courses for that. That made me learn how to troubleshoot because you don't just have plan A, B, and C. We had D, E, F, G. You know, we went through the whole alphabet because you literally had to plan for every single contingency. And it makes you, I don't want to say paranoid, but it makes you hyper aware of what could go wrong and what order you need to prioritize your troubleshooting in. And it had nothing to do with technology, but the lessons that I learned in emergency management, I employ every day in the work that I do just because of how I learned how to do things.
0: See, and and I've had ups and downs in my career where learning how how to write that plan from A through Q um, was the way to get things done. And today I've learned to keep that shorter, to only get to like F, because there's a couple of those possibilities that we're going to put on, out there that just are, you know, um, I'm trying to remember who said it, but I remember hearing the saying, don't build the bridge until you get to the, to the ravine. Because it people i I always had this tendency to try to like foresee all of these potential issues that are out there and trying to protect against each and every one of them and and I would never deliver because I was too busy protecting um, so I'd never achieved the goal
1: um, well and it's it's funny you mention that because i don't it's not about building the solutions. The way it helps me in IT is it makes me ask the questions. I ask the questions that other people don't ask and it makes them think of the problem in a different light or come at it from a different perspective. And every time I'm in a conversation, it just happened today when I was, when I was in a meeting today, I, I asked a question that nobody thought of because it was, it was plan D or plan E that I'm thinking of. And I ask a question, and the reaction I get was, "Well, that's a good question." Well, yeah, I don't ask them if they're not good questions. <laughs> <laughs> and it it completely changed the conversation where people were not. This was that conversation I was telling about with with the um, the server, you know, where they wanted redundancy and all they all they thought about was, "Okay, how am I going to set up my RAID array for redundancy?" And I ask you a question: "What kind of backups do you have?" What's your backup plan?
0: That's immediately what went through my brain when you started talking about RAID 10. I'm like, well, what's the backups? And how are you achieving these
1: backups while maintaining service? (laughs) Right. And that's where the emergency, that's where that preparedness comes from is like a good lawyer. You never ask a question that you don't have an answer to. But sometimes to get people to where they need to be in the conversation in that meeting, you have to guide them to it and you have to do it by asking questions that I know the answer to, but they didn't think of it. So you ask the questions, and one, they feel great because they come up with an answer at that point in time, and they give themselves total credit for it. But you also help them down that path, so you get the buying, you get the knowledge transfer, and it works out much better than me saying, okay, this is what your backup needs to be, and then dictating it to them. Yeah. So, so that's where it is. It really it helps to guide conversations and requirements gathering and troubleshooting
0: yeah oh man and all of those things are so necessary in everything that we do absolutely (laughs) requirements gathering making sure you know what the goal is (laughs) yep and and troubleshooting how do how do you fix it (laughs)
1: How do you yeah. make it better? You know, everyone yeah. complains when you call up your your cable company and you have to, my cable mode is like, oh, did you do this? Did you do that? And they run through their script. And it's like, yes, okay. I work in this industry. I've run through your script already. But they don't know how to step through that script other than step through that script. Right. And that's how they're trained. So it's the one thing I try to instill in my guys is you need to think on the fly. Yes, it's. It seems silly when we tell people, did you reboot your computer? But if you're running Windows, 90% of the time, a reboot is going to solve the problem. Oh, uh, way
0: too often. <laughs> clears everything so, out,
1: starts fresh. This is the only program you're running now. And yeah. suddenly it works. And everybody grumbles, oh, I got to close out all my programs. Yes, that's actually, those 52 times that you have opening Chrome are probably what's causing your problem.
0: I love how Chrome says, reload? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You didn't close down properly. Would you like to reload? Yes. And suddenly 15 windows spawn.
1: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And every one of them sets up their own virtual space and their own memory and their own processor space. And it's like, you just, you watch your memory utilization just, you know, your available memory just dip to the ends of the earth when that happens.
0: All
1: right. and well, it's
0: my it's my augmented memory because I'm getting old and I can't remember all that stuff anymore. <laughs> anyway, so I'm good with it. I, I just add a little more RAM. So
1: there you go.
0: <laughs> Any other tips or tricks for the uh, the young and those following?
1: Um, for for people in IT, no is never an option. But you have to tell people sometimes. Things they don't want to hear to manage expectations, um, and that's one of the biggest challenges I think we run into on a daily basis is managing people's expectations. Yeah, well, and and
0: like you said, you know, no. Sometimes the manual way is the better way. Yeah. You now I, I can automate so many things, but there's sometimes where it's so much better to just pay somebody to do a process then try to figure out how to do it programmatically.
1: Absolutely. And IT, like I said, IT is a tool. You don't have to to go to the toolbox every time you have a problem if it doesn't require a tool.
0: All right. Um, Favorite podcast out there?
1: My favorite podcast, uh, present company excluded, uh, (laughs) is is probably uh, Security Now.
0: Uh, really I really
1: enjoyed to that. that one too. And I listened to that pretty religiously. All right.
0: A um, couple other quick questions. So, uh, Linux, Mac, or Windows? Yes. I've run <laughs> all
1: three of them in
0: house. <laughs> oh, but which one's your preferred? I mean, I, I, I believe that's an iPhone poking out of your pocket.
1: I I do. I have an iPhone, so I'm an iOS for mobile. I'm not a big Android fan, uh, which is a point of consternation with my wife. She, she's a diehard Android phone person. I used to be uh, back when when the uh, HTC Evos were out. I loved my Evo, uh, but as soon as I was able to get an iPhone on my carrier, I got it, and. My wife is always telling me, oh, uh, I can't do this, or I can't do that, or my watch didn't work. And I always tell well, if you had an iPhone, it would just work. <laughs> and her retort is, well, if I had an iPhone, I'd be like everyone else. Yeah, everyone else, it would work. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, I'm, not, I'm not getting in the middle of this debate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, from a yeah, desktop right. standpoint, I'm primarily a Windows guy. I do have a new... Uh, uh, um, studio, uh, Mac studio downstairs uh, that I recently bought to do video production on. Uh, a couple of Mac lo- notebooks. I got a MacBook Air, a MacBook Pro. Um, I, I use them, you know, they work, they get the job done. I, I bought them originally because I had to support Macs because um, we every place I worked, there was always some artist or some marketing person who only swore... Can only do what he needed to do on a Mac, so you always have to support them. So I export, I support them at my expense by by acquiring the hardware myself. Um, and Linux is just it's just it's too simple not to have and to use. Um, so I run a couple. I run my Plex server off of it. I run a couple other things off my uh, my Linux box. So it's it's great for an internal server resource because Microsoft servers are really expensive to run. Yeah, yeah, especially the licensing. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been quite the conversation. I've really enjoyed this time. This has been um, great. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to promote? Anything else you want to bring to people's fo- um,
1: the forefront of anyone's mind? I think we've. Pretty much touched on everything and then some for, for what I had <laughs> expected to talk about. So, <laughs> uh,
0: I and I just remembered one other question. So, who's who's going to grow up to be more of the techie and following your your footsteps, your son or your daughter?
1: Um, probably my daughter. I thought it was going to be my son, but my son is very retro. He's he's working in radio now. He works for a, a local studio here a local um, network here. So he's a radio guy, and he's a vinyl guy. So he's kind of retro when it comes to stuff like that. He's um, cool. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, my daughter is the one that embraces technology. We, we just went to, uh, to Disney, and the amount of technology that we travel with is, is probably 70% me, 30% her at this point. Oh, man.
0: (laughs) How many battery banks do you guys take with you? (laughs)
1: Oh, my. I I just bring big ones now. It's a lot easier than dealing with the little ones.
0: Oh, man. All right. Well, Joe, great conversation. Thank you very much for your time. And um, that's uh, it for another episode of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me.